For me, it was about value creation um, and value creation for every actor in an ecosystem instead of value extraction. So, you know, coming from Silicon Valley was always like, how can we, you know, make as much money as possible, extract as much value as possible, and, you know, give and, you know, give value, but how are we going to charge as much as we can and make as much money as we can and get as much data as we can? And not that those are bad values, but that's just, you know, what drive, you know, drove the product market fit value capture structure of, you know, traditional companies. And I learned about DAOs and about token-based models. And it was like a win-win-win could be built where you had, you know, users, builders and workers and, uh, you know, service providers. So you have like these, you know, this whole, you know, this whole, you know, the founding team, the users, the uh, service workers, everybody wins financially and uh, from a, you know, a goal perspective. Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing. Welcome back to my podcast, Decent People. On the show today, I've got Jack O'Halloran. He is the co-founder and CEO of Scale Labs, which is um, a scaling solution, a layer two, if you will, uh, on Ethereum that promises to be much faster and much cheaper um, to use than uh, the, the current L1 Ethereum. Uh, we talk a lot about that uh, in the show, about how they're offering gasless transactions um, because they've come up with a new model for paying for transaction fees where it's it's more of a wholesale kind of approach rather than buy transaction approach so you're basically buying compute time on the network and then you can use that how you see fit rather than having to pay uh, per every transaction that you want to run we talked about his time as a, a receiver uh, for the Nebraska Cornhuskers uh, he played in Division one NCAA uh, football and growing up uh, in a ranch uh, in Nebraska and how football is, you know, kind of like Friday Night Lights kind of situation in Texas and, and about life in general. We talked about his time in Silicon Valley after he graduated and how he learned that there was a lot about extraction there and trying to take value from customers. And then when he came across Web3, how he really liked that all the participants in the ecosystem had incentives and could get paid for what they were doing. And we talked about, you know, scale and what's what he sees as uh, a sort of future with L2s and different types of blockchain applications and how artificial intelligence can be applied uh, to help with some of the infrastructure and kind of building blocks that uh, every blockchain needs. So with all that out of the way, let's get to the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And thanks a lot for listening. Hey, Jack, how you doing? Hey, doing good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, great to, to have you on the show. Thank you for coming. Um, where am I talking to you from today? I am in San Francisco. Okay. Um, I was wondering, is it, is it as bad as everyone says? I, I've, uh, I've been hearing like a lot of stuff about the city, and I'm just curious what, what your take is on it. You know, I've been living here for a long time. Um, I left, I think I moved here in 2006. Um, I, I lived for a while in, in Europe. I lived for a while in Napa and I moved back and I have to say, I think the city's definitely on the rise again there. It had some, some issues to get over and it's still getting over those, but, um, you know, still some things to be worked on, but it's, it's not as bad as people say. And I'm, I'm a, I'm a long-term, long-term, uh, believer in San Francisco. So, um, yeah, I, you know, in all, in like many cities, it depends on what part of town you're in. So. Yeah, that's that's a huge uh, point there. And 
Yeah, I've got a bit of a conflicted history with San Francisco, um, being a Los Angeles native myself. You know, <laughs> there's that rivalry, of course, between the cities. I was very glad to see the Lakers beat Golden State in the playoffs this year, um, <laughs> yeah. stuff like that. And then I, li I lived there for four years and, and then in Berkeley for three. So, um, you know, the city got over, like it just overgrew itself. That was one of the biggest issues. I mean, there's obviously like, you know, crime and tents and yeah. things that cause other issues. But, you know, one thing was just a lot of people didn't want to be here and there wasn't the infrastructure to support them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and they left to move to Miami and Austin and New York. And, and yeah. it was like a, a pressure release, <laughs> a pressure valve just got <laughs> yeah. um, released. And so it's just improved, I think, just from that perspective as well. well I, I remember after the dot-com bubble burst, it was, it was nice. You know, you could drive down to like Palo Alto in like 30 minutes, you know, there was, no, <laughs> yeah. there was nobody on the roads and, and it just <laughs> kind of felt like tumbleweeds were blowing around. Um, <laughs> But yeah, speaking of different parts of town, my brother lived for years in the Tenderloin, and um, that I just I couldn't go visit him after a while. It was just too nasty, you know. And I think yeah. uh, he was he was. I was reading a story in the New York Times about the Tenderloin, and they're like it's and they're like featuring it on Sixth Street. And I'm like, oh my god, that's where Adam lives. And I'm reading and reading, and then I'm like, they quote him in the story, and I'm like, holy <laughs> crap. He was, he had started like a community um, group to try to, you know, clean things up and stuff. So that was a, that was yeah. a funny, funny shock to read your brother's <laughs> quotes. He didn't even tell me. I've been like a reporter my whole career. You'd think he would tell me like, hey, I'm going to be in the New York Times. Yeah. But anyway, I found out about it uh, serendipitously. Yeah, I don't know. Too early for that word. Um, <laughs> anyway. Well, yeah. Th thanks so much for coming on. Um, you are... Uh, you, you co-founded Scale, which is a, a, a blockchain network, and um, that, that is seeking to like be really fast and very cheap, and and to uh, appeal to all sorts of different applications like gaming, uh, NFTs, and all that stuff. Um, but I'd, I'd love to hear before we get into that, just kind of back up and, and hear about your your background and uh, where you grew up and what what what, uh, what kind of what, what were you doing as a kid and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, well, I'm I'm originally from Nebraska. I'm from a kind of cowboy town in western Nebraska. Grew up very, very different life than I'm living now. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, I have to say, it was a phenomenal place to grow up. It was, you know, just different types of fun. Um, and I, I love going back. I've got a couple, I've got three kids and I'm taking them back this summer. And, you know, and uh, so, yeah, I grew up and not knowing much about tech, didn't grow up in like a were you you know, on a ranch? Or? Um, I grew up just kind of on the outskirts of town, but lots of had a lot of friends that were ranchers and farmers, and you know, like summer job. I used to bale hay and help yeah. my buddy's dad, who's a veterinarian. We'd go, you know, take care of cattle and stuff. It was yeah. just, it was a fun, different life. Uh, you know, and now I'm you know, living in cities and kind of flying around the world all the time. Uh, good contrast, I guess. Was there any cow tipping <laughs> involved in your childhood? <laughs> yeah. Cow tipping, I think, is more of a myth. Um, I just it? would not want to be chased down by a cow in the middle of the night. Uh, <laughs> so. yeah. yeah, that's great. Um, what were your folks doing? Um, you know, my my dad, my mom was a teacher, and my dad was a a, a surgeon. Oh wow, yeah, that's awesome. Um, and so, one of the things that just like jumped out of me on your, you know, like looking in, into your background and stuff, is that you played football for the Nebraska Cornhuskers uh, in Division One. Were you 
drawn to football early in life? Is that like sort of a thing uh, in Nebraska, kind of like a Texas sort of thing where everybody sort of like is the football life is, is huge? Oh, yeah. It's it's a religion in Nebraska. So you just, yeah. yeah, growing up there and I had opportunities to go to the coast and go to school and play different places. But and especially during that era where Nebraska was really good, um, you know, my that was my that was my number one goal was to go play football in Nebraska and and um, yeah, it is, uh, you know, if you haven't been to a game, if you're listening, like I highly recommend it. Nebraska has been, you know, on the, you know, on the way up now is what I'll say as opposed to, yeah. to down. But it was, um, you know, de- also, yeah, different, you know, kind of grew up different context. And, you know, you grew up in fourth grade, you're, you know, full padded playing football. And uh, yeah, just like definitely, uh, you know, very much like Texas, I'd say in terms of it being a religion and and something people really care about yeah so did you know at that age that like you were good enough to make it and were were people telling you that or was it just something you worked on and and it worked out for you you know what i kind of grew up in a town where no one thinks anyone's good enough to do things (laughs) so i just had to have this you know it was it was a great life lesson and you hear a lot about imposter syndrome but and you know i didn't i grew up i was in the largest class sporting class in terms of my school size but we were the furthest west town so we were the hicks living at you know and cowboys living out in western nebraska and and you know no one was it was like a pipe dream to think you could go do something like that and so for me i had to like have this like you know self dialogue to say i can do it i believe i can do it and you know i couldn't even tell people because people be like oh no you're not going to be able to do that i mean only people from you know, out of state or Omaha or Lincoln are going to go play for the Huskers so it was is that a type of like midwestern humility yeah <laughs> Yeah. yeah, tallest nail gets pounded down type thing, you know. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, and then, so obviously, you made it there, and you're playing. And like, what, what, what was that like? Uh, like, how many fan, like, how many fans are in the stadium there in Nebraska? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, there's ninety thousand people at every game. Wow. It's sold out for forty years in a row, and it was, it was a, it was a crazy experience. And in Nebraska, you're kind of a, you're a celebrity if you're on the team. People know who you are, and. Um, it was a it was a really interesting experience and, and and a good training for going and starting companies later and you know getting into the workforce of you know just all the things you have to deal with and you know I remember one year I was a starter and my junior year and then something happened and I wasn't starting you know I was, got benched and I was start, not starting the next game and everybody in my hometown's calling me and like what's wrong <laughs> you know it was like an immense amount of like pressure and also like feelings of of failure that you just you know, just like really good, good life lessons. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine, especially at that early age, um, when yeah, college students aren't usually put under that kind of, you know, pressure, uh, certainly not publicly. Um, did any of your teammates go on to play, um, in, in the pros? Oh yeah. Yeah. We had, we had a big NFL pipeline back then. You know, I had a dream to play in the NFL too. And then, you know, got injured. I started my junior year, ended up getting, you know, have a really bad injury that, um, you know, really, you know, impacted me my senior year, but, you know, was able to just, you know, play with a lot of guys that went to the NFL, probably at least 30. Um, oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So it was, that was fun. It was, you know, cool. It's different when you see your friends on TV and, yeah. you know, seeing them, see them suit up. It's, it's cool, cool experience. Yeah, absolutely. So you're ranching, you're doing like stuff with veterinary stuff, you're playing football. D- does tech come into your world at all when you were a kid? You know what? I have to say, I got, I was very, I mean, my tech experience was all about like, you know, n- you know, doing Claris works on a Mac, uh, dating myself a bit. 
Um, and, you know, just learning how to type. Uh, but I was not a technologist at all. I didn't have any sort of affinity towards, you know, computers or technology. I just didn't understand it. I didn't grow up in a place where it was like, even understood. I don't think, you know, there wasn't even a computer science class in my school that I knew of, you know, and, you know, so if you wanted to learn to, I didn't, I don't think I knew anybody even knew how to write code. Okay. And uh, for me, I got, you know, just really lucky at it. A couple of my dad's brothers lived in the Bay Area and they said, hey, you need to come out and work in tech. And, you know, I was like, oh, no. And, you know, what, one of them talked me into coming out and doing informational interviews. And and I, you know, flew out to San Francisco. And next thing I knew, I was like, I'm moving to San Francisco. I'm going to work <laughs> in tech. And my friends are saying, like, what? You're going to work in tech? And, yeah, I had to, had to, you know, just kind of put a lot of work ethic that it same same work ethic I put into into sports, into just learning about technology, learning how to code. And, um, you know, and it's, you know, anybody thinking of working in tech, what I'd say is you can do it if you put the work in. What was the thing that appealed to you about it? Was there, um, and what era are we in here um, in the tech world? Like, yeah, this was, was there something that just grabbed you? 2005, yeah, 2005 okay. when I graduated, uh, graduated college. And, you know, for me, it was, um, it was this, it was really interesting to see how, you know, from the outside, it's almost magical how these things work. And I started understanding this like layering and like foundational element of knowledge. Where, well, if I, you learn this and then the next thing's accessible, you can learn that. And, and it turned into this, like, you know, just sparked my intellectual curiosity and then uh, started working in mobile and actually cryptography uh, and, and security in my, in my first job. And it just kind of sparked this interest of like enterprise software to me that, you know, is kind of a geeky topic, but it's, um, it's just a lot of like, you know, a lot of smart people trying to solve problems. And I think that's what really turned me on was just the brains that were trying to figure out better ways to do things and, you know, build things that then touch, you know, people's lives back in Nebraska and other places. Uh, you know, that was, a, that was the thing that captured me about Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, and, and so what were some of the first jobs you had that, that sort of like where you cut your teeth? My first company uh, that, I, that I worked for was called Good Technology. So this was uh, back when BlackBerry was a big thing and Good was BlackBerry's main competitor. And it was, it was essentially a mobile computing platform for if you wanted to have all the other hosts of smartphones, Palm Trios and iPhones and, you know, Nokias and Samsungs and you know, in a, a company wanted to enable your email and, and applications, well, they would use good. And so my first job, I was actually in sales, which was great for me because, you know, it was a good way to start learning the tech and eventually moved into product management and partnerships and doing other things that were more, you know, I like, you know, that were, you know, gave me the training I needed to go start an enterprise software company. Um, but yeah, starting in sales to me was a, you know, I think just perfect outlet where, you know, I, I could use the strengths I had and also, um, you know, hone some new skills. Yeah. And I noticed um, on your LinkedIn, you were um, a student ambassador for Red Bull. So it looks like you, you had that kind of in your pocket already. Like the sit, like you were probably, like you said, sort of a celebrity and popular and athletic and that, that all just sort of came naturally to you. Yeah. By the way, Red Bull has a phenomenal student program where, you know, they have one ambassador at each university. And you get this like this knowledge of marketing and you know grassroots marketing, and you go to this training camp where they you know you literally drink the Kool Aid and they train you, and then you get other people to drink the Kool Aid, and uh, and I did it for three years in college, and it was you know it was a, a huge you know I think piece of my 
you know, a uh, huge learning for me to see how they built, you know, at the end of the day, they were, you know, the philosophy was we're selling, you know, you know, liquid ingredients that probably only cost them, you know, a penny to create and they sell it for $2. Yeah. So you can't, if you're doing that, you have to sell something that's bigger than, you know, the chemicals and the liquids in the bot in the can, you have to sell a brand. And they had, you know, I think one of the first like real leaders in, in grassroots marketing and uh, at least of my generation, it was, it was a good learning experience. They do that. Um, what is it called? The Fluffenhagen or whatever. Do you know what that is? Did you yeah, do that? Yeah, you know, that. Where they like people make those crazy contraptions and they try to fly or like go over water. <laughs> and you know, yeah, they have all of these like, you know, so the brand is really interesting and like very well thought out and that there's just like cool edgy element. And then there's this kind of fun, lighthearted, self-deprecating side. And, you know, and they try to like, you know, round out the brand almost as if it's a person. Um, mm -hmm. And do things like you know community events and the yeah the you know like derby uh, race and you yeah. know the flight yeah the Fluffentag or whatever it's called yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, makes good commercials uh, you know but um so back to San Francisco like around two thousand five um, obviously blockchain had not come around yet um, what was the vibe there like at that time in terms of like the technology that that was like you know, uh, capturing Silicon Valley's sort of attention. Yeah. So mo mobile was hot. And then I was working in mobile, mobile, and, and also just we're in this wave of, Hey, if you have a process that has, if paper is involved, how can we move it, you know, to a computer system? Uh -huh. It was kind of this. The iPhone came out in 2007, right? Was that yeah. And it, and it was like still, you know, a fairly broken experience from an app perspective, but I think people knew where it could go. It was, it was frankly very similar to where we are with blockchain now, where you see these building blocks, you saw what was coming, but to think in 2007 that literally three years later, you would have a million people playing real time and like, you know, Supercell, Clash of Clans game globally around the world in high speed. I spent so much money on Clash of Clans. It's, it's, it's a little embarrassing how much money I spent on Clash of Clans. Yeah, me too. I was a total, you know, I started playing just to like learn about gamification models, mm -hmm. this, you know, cause they're so brilliant. I was like, Hey, I need to learn this for, for enterprise software. Like how do I build better products? And I started playing and then, you know, what started as a research assignment turned into like fun addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Very addicting. Um, and then, so Coming into like then 2008, obviously the financial crisis is, is not really a San Francisco thing, but how did that affect the tech sector in the city at that time? You know, well, for me, I had started my first company in 2008. So I had you know, good sold to Motorola. We had a you know, big exit, successful exit, and then said, okay, like the founder of the company had become my mentor. And, and he, you know, he said, hey, I think you can start a company. And and so for me, I was like, okay, like three years ago, I was like, you know, slamming my head into other people playing football and didn't know anything about tech. And next step, it was like, hey, I'm going to go try to start an enterprise software company. And, and um, you know, we started in June 2008. We had, NASA was our first customer. We actually had a digital currency platform. So you could tokenize uh, internal resources, essentially, and like let people bid on resources internally. Wow. And it was, you know, the the perfect business to be absolutely mowed down by the 2008 financial crisis. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, so the, we had to completely pivot into building what, 
you know, was, you know, an AI company. And because we had to build all these, you know, we, it was just called predictive analytics back then. So we built this analytics platform, but, you know, I have to say it was a, it was a, you know, real eye-opening experience to see how, you know, things could go from like boom to, you know, bust really quickly. And, you know, and yeah, so that was, it was interesting. We survived it, but man, it was hard. So the idea for digital currency was out there, of course, before Bitcoin. Um, but is that? But it was kind of I don't know. It was sort of um, I don't I don't know if I would say it was mainstream. But it, was that your inspiration for this, or what? How did the the digital currency kind of part of it fit, or where did, where did that come from? I didn't hear of Bitcoin until 2011. So this was just, and you know, we didn't have the the you know, there's no decentralization. But what we knew is, and the company was called Incentiline. We mm-hmm. knew that you know, currencies could drive incentives and align incentives. And, you know, for example, at NASA, if you want access to the wind tunnel, you say, oh, I need it tomorrow and I need it for eight hours and, you know, I need it really bad. And, you know, the reality is you say that because you'll probably get it like, you know, a week later and for four hours. Um, but if you have to like start bidding and you say, you oh, I could actually reserve this time two weeks from now and it's going to cost one fourth the amount of this currency that would cost for me to bid it right away. Mm. And, and, you know, and so, so incentive and, and we, we learn, you know, incentives drive behavior and currencies are a great way to drive incentives. And if you look at, you know, cryptocurrencies today, it's all about incentive alignment and, you know, mathematics and, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, it's because we're humans, why we, you know, why Bitcoin is secure. Like at any point in time, the miners could decide to, you know, try to steal the money, but then Bitcoin wouldn't be worth anything, right? Yeah. Um, and same is true for Ethereum. So um, we were, I think, ahead of the curve, but also be you know, not really thinking about it in the same context of how it's really came forward today. And once you finally learned about Bitcoin in 2011, like, what was your thought? Like, did it did it blow your mind, or did you not get it, or how, how did that? I didn't. I didn't get it. I just didn't get it. I finally, it was like it was 2013. I was in China. And I was talking to a guy uh, who's, you know, was one of the founders of CoinDesk. And, mm-hmm. and he said, uh, this guy, Shaq Khan, he said, you're just going, talking about Bitcoin the whole time. And I said, all right, like, let me, all right, I'll go buy some Bitcoin and I'm going to learn about it. And, and then that's kind of when I really figured it out. But, and then, but still, I didn't get it. I just thought of about it as a currency. And then when Ethereum launched, I remember, you know, reading the original Ethereum website that had all these use cases and learning about DAOs. And that's when my mind was blown. And I said, okay, I've got to go build something in this space. Yeah. So what was it about that? Like, was it just the, the possibilities of that, that, that Ethereum opened up rather than a single use case in Bitcoin with like a value transfer? You know, for me, it was about value creation um, and value creation for a, uh, for every actor in an ecosystem instead of value extraction. So, mm-hmm. you know, coming from Silicon Valley was always like, how can we, you know, make as much money as possible, extract as much value as possible and, you know, give and, you know, give value, but how are we going to charge as much as we can and make as much money as we can and get as much data as we can. And not that those are bad values, but that's just, you know, what drive, you know, drove the product market fit value capture structure of, you know, traditional companies. And I learned about DAOs and about, token-based models. And it was like a win-win-win could be built where you had, you know, users, builders and workers and, uh, you know, service providers. So you have like these, you know, this whole, you know, this whole, you know, the founding team 
the users, the uh, service workers, everybody wins financially and uh, from a you know a goal perspective. And it was it was just eye opening. It was a different model. And also like it's superpower in terms of bootstrapping network effects and getting people involved and growing community. And that to me, the business model adjustment is what really captured my imagination. Yeah, it, it is fascinating to me as well that the, like you're saying, everyone involved, like the infrastructure, like you can, you can make money from the infrastructure here, you know, like everyone has access to all these different parts of it. Whereas like the internet, you know, only a, a select few were making money, you know, on the TCP IP sort of stuff and the, the the hardware and things, but but this has kind of been flipped on its head with with the blockchain um, economics and things like that. So yeah, um, like and Ethereum's a great example. So you look at the team that behind Ethereum and the people who like bought in on the you know the ICO. It's like it's like did they extract a bunch of value and make all this money and you know other people just use the product? No, like everybody, the users, the workers, people running you know running nodes. Uh, people building like it everyone won that was involved in like pushing the movement forward and you know and that can live through you know now through the whole application level you look at the future of gaming you look at the future of you know social media products and you know it's not about you know hey you can monetize your own data you can uh you know be in control and like help govern how you know the systems work for the applications you use it's that, you know, and it's still, you know, I think we're still the early days because, you know, we're not at a point where people uh, are being impacted globally with applications in that manner mm -hmm. because these things are still just hard to use. But I think we're close and, you know, we're on the right path. Yeah. Well, let's talk about scale then. Um, what, to tell me what it's about and, and what was the, the problem that you were trying to solve when you, um, you know, came up with this. And I also noted um, you started, scale uh right in like the beginning of 2018 so that was another like you started your other uh at your other company in uh, right at the beginning of the financial crisis and then 2018 was uh that was just about the beginning of the, the last bear market so um, <laughs> let me know if you're going to start a company anytime soon so i can uh, get my uh my affairs in order <laughs> yeah, I know. um well so for us uh so this was it was for me it was 2017 I was working out of the Saster co-working space, working on another SaaS company, machine learning, AI company. And I would go and, you know, trying to, you know, trying to come up with an idea for the next company I was going to start, which is a really tough situation to be in. And each day I would go there and I would just read about Ethereum, read about crypto, crypto. And, and I said, you know what? I need to start something in the space for, and, and again, for those reasons we discussed, and then, you know, so for me, there was this, uh, you know, I wanted to start an application. I had all these apps that I wanted to start to help bring value to users and, you know, transform industries. And then I met Stan Kladko, my co-founder, who's a you know, world-renowned physicist and a, you know, crypt like cryptographer and Stanford researcher and, and ran, you know, NIST certified cryptography lab for a long time. And it started multiple companies. And he also had all these apps he wanted to build, but we both ran into the same conundrum of, well, these things are too costly to use. They're too complicated. And so we designed, so Stan had really, you know, he deserves the credit as the technical visionary. He had designed a system to scale the applications, the Ethereum applications he wanted to build. And, and then, you know, I said, like, Stan, why don't we just build this and bring this to the market? Let's, let's help people like us 
because we we believe in Ethereum and lets people let's let people access Ethereum in a more accessible way, in a gas-free manner, in a way that's like financially viable, and it still anchors into the security of Ethereum. And that's you know before people weren't talking about layer two, they weren't talking about app chains, they weren't talking about Ethereum scalability and you know, and that was really, you know, and we didn't want to, it was at this time, you were either trying to build um, a competitive layer one, or you were, you know, on the app level and we, or, mm -hmm. and, you know, so for us, that was our own needs drove the requirements for scale. And then, you know, we formally started uh, the project June or January 1st, 2018, and had been working on it for a while in 2017. And, and then, yeah, like, you know, just. I, and I have to say, it took a long time to build. You know, it took, it was a lot of hard work. A lot of people came together. And, you know, this year, you know, in the last year, we've had 72 million plus transactions on chain and yeah. we crossed over a billion in gas fees. And so it's, you know, it's awesome to see it come together. And, you know, and, you know, we're just, you know, we're just one piece of this big Ethereum puzzle that's coming together and I think, you know, working to bring value to, you know, a lot of people. That's amazing. But, were there times in from like 2018 to 2020 or so there was a pretty, you know, it was a pretty bad bear market. I remember <laughs> yeah. um, I got, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I got my book contract then to write about the beginning of Ethereum. And I was like, holy crap, is this going to be like an obituary, you know, because it really <laughs> felt dead for quite a while. Was what was, did that give you any qualms? You know, um, not personally, and we were very protected because we didn't have a token yet. And so we were able to survive it, but we were doing a, there was a SAFT financing that happened in, uh, you know, 2019, fall of 2019. I got to say that was, I guess it was summer 2019. And that was, you know, I've never had to work harder in my life to raise capital. It was, there were believers out there, but everybody's assets under management who was in, you know, all the VC firms were, you know, no one was holding assets anymore in USDC. Yeah. And so the market just took a much harder hit because you had to move back into fiat tax implications and then getting back in people just wanted to get back in and on you know an eth or bitcoin and it was it was tough but from a builder perspective you'd go to the eth hackathons and i mean these were just vibrant times like the people there all the sponsors all the builders all the hackers you look at you know two years later these were all you know billion dollar plus value projects that were you know, people that were making the industry move. And so it was kind of like, I think a lot of bonding happened during that time and like, you know, like collective uh, belief. <laughs> and, yeah. But it was from the outside, you know, very, very rocky. And, you know, ETH hits $87 or something, I think that, that year. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And in that transition, those two years, it's really amazing. Crypto went from like, this is about a coin to about, no, this is about applications. This is about lending. This is about borrowing, you know all sorts of things uh, that came out in the DeFi summer. And then NFTs kind of followed on the heels of that, that just totally changed, um, you know, how we can treat digital uh, files of any type. Um, so let's like, so is, is, is it too simplistic to say that scale is a layer two? You know what? I, I think I like that simplicity, but the industry doesn't. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of which the word layer and the number one or two is pretty simple. And we layer into Ethereum at a foundational level. The network shares security with Ethereum and staking lives on Ethereum. But then on top of it, you have these, these blockchains that are purpose built and designed to um, make, make, you know, Ethereum applications run fast. So we're, 
you know, some, you know, without getting into all the technical nuance, some people would say scale is not a layer two, it's a Ethereum scaling platform, but that's, you know, that happens in the open source world. You get a lot of kind of cranky researchers who want <laughs> very specific terms. And, um, but yeah, our goal at the end of the day is if you build an application for Ethereum, a game, a Web3 application, something that needs high volume of throughput, we want to help you, you know, the network is there to serve you, to help you deliver zero fee transactions to users and, and, uh, and, you know, really bring, you know, bring Web3 to the masses. Yeah. And so obviously you can't do any, anything on Ethereum without paying gas. So if the users aren't paying in this system, who's, who's paying for the gas fees? What happens is in, in most blockchains or pretty much almost every blockchain other than scale, you are paying a transaction fee. On scale, someone, whether it be an application developer, a business, a company, a DAO, an organization of some type, someone has to pay for the compute space that run the chain. And so you're not paying per transaction, you're actually paying for you know, access to these computers that are, or nodes that are cobbled together to create these secure blockchains. And so, so the payment still happens to validators and stakers, but it's paid for in advance and it's done in a much better unit economic model. You're paying for, it's is a it lot like less expensive. In bulk? I mean, yeah, it... you're buying in bulk. You're basically okay. buying. It's like, imagine if you're renting a car, you're like, okay, I'll rent this vehicle, I'll rent this engine and wheels. Um, and I'll pay per month as opposed to paying per mile. It's, it's a similar model. And so it's just, um, and instead of the end user paying, it's like web two where, you know, Hey, last time you took a, you know, an Uber, did you have to go pay, you know, a fee to Amazon, the servers they run? No, they pay for it. <laughs> you just yeah. pay them and the cost gets kind of subsidized back down. And so that's the model for scale. It's overhead, right? Just like yeah. any other. Okay. There's a couple of things I wanted to get in here to here, but just real quick, while you were building um, this, I, I read that uh, half your team was in Ukraine and then the war broke out and you guys had to um, basically get them all to safety. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that and, and how things are going now? Oh yeah, that was a, that was a wild, wild experience. Um, you know, we have, you know, we have 20 some people that were in Ukraine and I personally went to Ukraine 20 times over the first, you know, since, you know, since, you know, 2000, end of 2017, as we were ideating on scale all the way up to, I think I went about a month before the war started and, and was you this know, Kharkiv I, you were going? Yeah, I was going to Kharkiv. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it just in this, the country was just on the rise. It was just, it had, it had just grown immensely since I started going and, you know, and all these, you know, my colleagues, all these people like just completely got uprooted. Some of them were on vacation and they just couldn't go home and they just like, okay, I got to buy completely new clothing. And, you know, some of them just bought homes or apartments or condos. And, and so it was just, you know, thankfully we were able to, you know, get everybody out prior to the war starting. We had a offsite in Lisbon, got everybody to Lisbon and, you know, other than a handful of people that, did, you know, wanted to stay. And then, they were, you know, out of the country and um, were legally kind of compliant way able to to stay there. Um, but it was, you know, just and it's still to this day, you know, these my colleagues, all these people are they're going through a war and their family's still there and there's bombings and it's, you know, it's an immense amount of stress. But it was a yeah. it was a surreal experience and, you know, a very bad way. But it, it was amazing to see, you know, people come together and uh, band together and, you know, just kind of push through it and yeah it was, i was interested though to read about Kharkiv um and being sort of a 
parallel to San Francisco and the tech scene and having so many developers and, and folks there. There's a lot of, a lot of um, just, I think, general tech development, right, in that city? Oh, yeah. It was, I mean, just boot, like, you know, it, it was, and it was going through this massive growth. And, you know, the interesting thing about that city is you, you, you know, and I've, if you like are smart and you want a job, you learn tech. <laughs> and so it's not like, you know, it, imagine like whatever school you went to in the U S if like 80% of the people, you know, were studying computer science and math instead of all the other things they studied. And cause, and it just, it's just produced just so many great, you know, math based engineers out of that city. It's a, and there's just a really good, you know, numerous good, great universities and ton of talent. And the, the city was really starting to grow and change and transform. And it's just kind of, you know, I was thinking of like investing and buying property there. And um, I just believed in it so much. And yeah, it was, you know, out of nowhere, you know, there's a war. Well, I was going to, I should know this probably, but was there the sense that this was going to happen? Like was Russia, like, were they making moves to invade uh, or did this sort of like take everyone by surprise? I don't remember really um, knowing about that. Well, you know, there was always the conflict in Crimea and the, the Eastern part. Right. And, but that was like, you know, Oh, these are rebels. These are people that want to defect. It was, there was a lot of like non-clarity of the optics. And so, and these two countries, right, have been, you know, we're a part of a, you know, unified country at one point. And there was a, there were a lot of like strong connections. And so I think it was a huge disbelief that this would ever happen. Yeah. And, um, and then it wasn't until, and our whole team was like, oh, this isn't going to happen. This is all the media hype. And then about two weeks or three weeks before it happened, all of a sudden everyone was like, uh, this is actually real. Yeah. This is not media. This is not a drill. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, to your question and point, it, it was, it was, you know, in retrospect, yeah, maybe it seemed like it, you know, was bound to happen, but in the time it was, you know, not a, a you know, expected reality. Yeah. And to your point, I think Vladimir Putin still considers that part of like mother Russia. Right. And I think he's very old school, um, back in the Soviet days, you know, in the KGB kind of, I think, at least my read on, on it. Is, yeah. And I, you know, and like, there's a lot of suspicion too around like, what sort of information is he getting? It's like, you know, there's this cultural thing where if you bring the, you know, the messenger gets shot. So no one wants to bring bad news. <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, who no. even knows how connected he is to reality. That's, yeah. that's part of the narrative I think that's going in that part of the world. I think for sure. Um, they're showing the world that the Russian military is not even close to what, you know, people thought it was, I think, which is, uh, I'm sure not what he intended, uh, yeah, by invading. Um, so let's get back to scale here. And one thing that I found interesting in reading up on it was, um, you guys are offering on-chain file storage, which I have, I don't know if there's another chain that's doing that, um, right now, but can you, can you tell me a little bit about that and why that's like, what, that allows you to do? Yeah, I mean, there, there, because of the nature, again, of how scale works, where people are renting the space in these nodes, and the primary space in these computers or nodes is, you know, utilized to run uh, Ethereum virtual machine, to run, uh, you know, execute transactions, smart contracts, just run like a standard blockchain. But because of the dynamics or like of how, you know, these nodes are structured, 
these uh, containers can live and be connected into the Ethereum virtual machine that can serve other functions like file storage. So you could mint an NFT and store it locally on chain instead of just you know, having this image that lives hopefully on Amazon and you spend all this money and this thing points somewhere else and it hopefully renders a picture. That picture can be stored and certifiably you know, live on chain, um, which is really cool. Or you could you know, run machine learning models and you know, not train models, but you could execute AI models you know, in a... In, in a blockchain, if you want trustless execution of, of a model. And so that we built Scale ML back in 2018 with uh, you know, the goal of letting you know, TensorFlow models run in the file storage container. But, and so that's, I'm interested, you know, I'm really curious to see what the builders and developers that are building on Scale do with that, especially with the onset of AI. Um, and I, you know, I spent a decade working in AI. A lot of our team uh, spent a lot of time working in AI and advanced analytics. and so. You know, so yeah, file storage does some cool stuff, and but the most basic thing it does uh, is just store NFT images, which is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you make a great point that like what you're buying when an, you buy an NFT is a hash, right? That points to somewhere else. You're not actually you don't actually have the um, the image on chain. What are the areas that like folks are using scale for? Is it gaming? Is it is it NFTs? Is it like uh, what are what are you guys finding the the, the most demand for, for this kind of like fast and um, very inexpensive uh, blockchain? As you would probably expect, like high volume transactions that where, you know, you want lower costs. So gaming is a huge, you know, probably 70% of the utilization of scale and, you know, the projects that are joining. And the other 30% are, um, you know, projects that are building Web3 applications and loyalty programs with NFTs and NFT gating and, um, you know, you know, decentralized social media products and you know, all these, you know, use cases that are frankly just not even possible if you have to pay even one cent per transaction. They just aren't feasible to, you know, utilize a blockchain if you want to do millions of these things a day for an application. And yeah. so that's where we're just seeing a lot of, you know, really strong developer interest. And, 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 you know, if you check out the blog, you can see a lot of the, you know, there's just, you know, announcement, you know, almost two or three a week that are being announced that are, you know, people that are building on scale. Yeah, that's cool. That, that kind of brings me to another point that I wanted to talk to you about. And that's just like blockchain economics. Um, you know, the Ethereum Foundation has always had to rely on, you know, uh, obviously they had their initial sale back in the day, but to keeping, you know, keeping these things going, uh, in perpetuity, I think is challenging. And so how are you guys dealing with that? Um, and it may be, uh, you can just like, yeah, I, I don't have any idea, but it's always interested me um, when you're sort of providing the infrastructure for this stuff, there's not a lot of ways to monetize that or am I missing something? Yeah, well, scale has like, you know, built in monetization where people can pay for, uh, pay for blockchains. And then, you know, and, and the network has been in a very, what I'd say, like, you know, uh, you know, just like all, all networks, I think they're in a loss leader growth stage where you're not trying to maximize your fees, you're trying to maximize your growth. But, you know, uh, with on-chain governance, uh, you know, my understanding is there's going to be a proposal pretty soon that, that helps take the network to the next level to really start, you know, focusing more on monetization, which you know, is a natural step, right? You want to start with growth. You don't want to, you know, impede, um, you know, you look at all the, you know, like products in web two, there's just, I think a real, 
real strong, like, you know, grow first, monetize later strategy. And I think blockchains are going through the same thing, but you do need sound economics. If you don't have sound economics, then these, you know, these are just like, you know, it's, it's eventually the music stops and, you know, people don't have seats to sit down on. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's always kind of struck me as, as odd that um, a lot of the Web3 world it relies on sort of like old fashioned sort of grants, you know, to, to continue like the Gitcoin grant program is, is hugely popular. It just seems like for such a futuristic, um, you know, industry and endeavor to, to have to rely on the goodwill of other people to keep it going. Uh, is, is just seems kind of odd. And it can be frustrating, like selling into the space because we're really finding some really great partners now that want, they don't want to go with a chain that's just going to give them a lot of money or give them a huge grant. They're re- they're willing to pay mm-hmm. because they want the best product, but it is frustrating when you're selling and, and you have something that says, okay, well, how much money will you give us? And it's like, you know, maybe we're not a good fit to work together. There's other people that are just literally, you know, and the part of it is, I think if you just have EVM running on a different blockchain and you fork Geth, you don't really have a differentiator. And so you're using grants to try to buy you know, by customers and mm-hmm. um, by partners. And, and that's not sustainable. I think, you know, we're seeing, you know, I think we're going to see those models exposed and, <laughs> and, you know, I won't name any names, but, you know, there's, I think some really strong examples of that, but uh, yeah, it, it, part of it makes sense. The other part is like, you know, we've got to show that, um, you know, economic viability in order to show the sustainability of the industry. Yeah, for sure. Um. You mentioned AI, and I'm curious, uh, obviously, it's a very hot topic. Um, how do you see that integrating into blockchain? Uh, and, and are there pain points that can be eased w- with artificial intelligence? Yeah, I, you know, my, my feeling, I've got a blog that's going out, which may or may not be out by the time this is released, but it's around the three phases of, of where I personally believe AI will impact blockchain. And you know, the first phase is just like building with AI. I think we're going to see, I think we're going to see 10x the amount of dApps built in the next year because builders are going to get so many efficiencies to, you know, code faster, QA faster, test faster, um, and you know, just build to turn out products like you, you know, with a, these AI tools, you can, you know, even a non-developer can build a robust application in a weekend. <laughs> so I think there's going to be this just like utilization to build. Um, the next phase, I think we're going to actually start seeing a lot of applications that are decentralized that utilize centralized AI as a component, like like in gaming, for example, uh, uh, there's a game called uh, Minerva by the Crypto Coliseum team that has a AI chat feature. You can actually talk to this Oracle personality that will like, that will tell you things and predict things. And, hmm. you know, so you start seeing these like integrated experiences and you know, and then I think the last phase is just where you actually have like deep integration with like AI and blockchain and, you know, these things are working together in this smart, sophisticated, integrated manner. But I think personally, that's a ways off. We're going to not see that really happening for three, five, 10 years where these things are like at their fabric, deeply interwoven. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, and then another thing that that scale is is obviously helping um uh promote or or create is is the metaverse um th- there's a lot of 
I don't know. There's been a lot of talk uh, recently about you know the metaverse, whether it's it's working or not. What's your take on it, and and what is the what does the metaverse mean to you as as a term? Yeah, I think the term metaverse is one that has been, you know, definitely got swung around in the hype cycle. Um, if you think about a metaverse, a metaverse could be a lot of things. I mean, think about all like the games people play. Think about the, you know, chat environments where they aren't themselves and they have a you know a different personality or handle <laughs> and an anonymous, uh, you know, and in a way those are all metaverses too. Um, but when I think about it, I think it's just more, and obviously Facebook thing, you know, thinks it's important enough that they change their entire company name. But um, I do think that, you know, technology um, and blockchain in particular is going to provide a ton of value to this like digital world that we can live in. And I think there's, there'll be lots of them. And I mean, you know, imagine back, you know, when you and I were Clash of Clans addicts, if we also could be talking to each other and have like a personality that we own that was an NFT avatar and, you know, be trading and, you know, kind of like more living in this world, immersed in it uh, as from a community perspective, like while you were playing. And I think that's the that's the real hook. And and but the term metaverse, I think, is a little bit overused and, you know, under, misunderstood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. But. It's been interesting to watch how it's it's evolving, and I think a lot of brands um, are coming around to the idea that they shouldn't be charging for NFTs that are allowing you access to the metaverse. It should be something that's free, and that's like trying to promote, you know, what they're selling. But it's also creating a new way for you to interact with your customers, or if you're a musician with your fans. And I think um, a lot of that is is definitely evolving before our eyes but that's one thing that's always been so fascinating about watching this space um for me anyway um yeah i agree i totally agree it's like i think people got the they got it wrong the first step when they're like let's sell these expensive yeah. nfts and they don't yeah. figure out stuff you can do with them and now yeah people have oh you know what let's not sell these let's let's give them to people if they do things and then let's let them earn and gain more value and eventually the more they're immersed in doing these things, then these things are going to accrue value, have real utility value and, you know, with perks. And, and so anyways, yeah, that, it's, yeah, you're well totally said. right. Yeah. Um, so just like lastly, um, I was reading about you and, and one quote stood out to me. Um, you, you were quoted as saying that there's a massive misunderstanding about our industry. And I was just wondering if you could kind of dive into that a little bit. And, and, and is it, do you still feel that way or is it, are we still in the midst of like this mis misunderstanding? Yeah. I mean, I think I don't know exactly which quote you're referring to. My guess is maybe it's something to do with this whole like tokens and FTX debacle. And I think it was in know, the Knob Hill Gazette. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There we go. Shaq 15 or whatever. Uh, yeah, so crypto underground. Yeah. And that may have even been prior to FTX. I, um, but there's still, you know, this was like the Terra collapse was happening and there was, you know, all this, you know, the card, the, the, the cards were tipped and the, you know, they were, they, the, you know, things were starting to fall. And, and so I think the misunderstanding is like, oh, these crypto people are trying to shill tokens or looking for, like I, you know, I had my kids preschool happy hour and there's a guy saying, oh, you know, it's all just talk for marks and, you know, this whole decentralization and people are just looking to, you know, get people to buy into this thing and shill tokens. And it's like, I was like, you really don't get it, do you? Yeah. And part yeah. of it is he was a really smart guy that likes to be a futurist and I think didn't believe in, in blockchain. And so he, he couldn't, 
didn't feel like he could switch teams ever. Um, but that's where the misunderstanding is because, you know, you look at like the people I deal with every day are builders and they're just like, you know, seeing this as a tool to build better applications that bring more value back to users as opposed to, you know, you know, a tokenized rug pull um, that you see. And so that's, you know, I, I hope to see that, you know, continually evolve and change. And but it's I think uh, will always be a byproduct of high growth, high money industries. You're going to just have you know a lot of that junk. Yeah, agreed. And, and I think the potential here for, you know, it's going to save that guy money if this works out, right? It's going to be more transparent. It's going to be more secure. Like there's, there's all sorts of benefits that, that people, I don't, I don't know why they don't see it, but I think a lot of it is sort of willful. Um, but I, I decided many years ago to just, I, I don't have time for those folks anymore. <laughs> yeah. yes. I've had that argument too many times and uh, it's, it's fine if you want to think that, but I, we're going to, continue on building the next internet and whatever, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, and you need the haters. Like, if you don't have them, you're not doing your job. And, you know, it's yeah. like, first they laugh at you, then they ignore you, and then they try to stop you. And, uh, you know, and. Yeah, and, unfortunately, I think we're in that stopping phase now yeah. in terms of like DC, at least, uh, yeah. regulation and what's going on. Mm -hmm. hey, Jack, thank you so much uh, for this conversation. It's been fascinating and, and for all your insights. Um, Tell people how they can learn more about scale and, and how they can find you. Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at Jack O'Holloran. You can learn about scale, go to scale.space. Uh, that's S K A L E dot space. And you can, you know, get access to the discord server and join the community or, uh, you know, find the GitHub. If you want to see all the code, everything's fully open source or, you know, just, uh, or follow the, the scale Twitter. So, um, yeah, excited to, yeah, you know, anybody here wants to uh, join the community. We are, you know, there are a lot of great people that are building and, you know, involved. So that's great. Yeah. Best of luck with scale, Jack. And it was, again, it was a pleasure talking. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was fun. Yeah, really appreciate uh, you having me on the show. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes.